0: You know, Dustin, I was really surprised that Dalton decided to swear himself off of talking for this episode.
1: I was, too. I was very, very surprised. I don't know how long
0: that's going to last, but we'll see what happens, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking, though, if you
1: could erase selectively people... Someone played... from this table? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That was a bad transition. Uh, <laughs> although, you promised not to be mean. You resolved mm, That's not. true. Mm-hmm, stop mm-hmm. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um... I do think that uh it's interesting to think about would there be events, persons, ideas? Would we would we want to give up
0: any part of our memories? I feel like my memory's already pretty bad that I don't know that I could <laughs> Oh yeah, it wouldn't matter anyway. Yeah. They probably have blocked out quite a bit. <laughs> so I'm not too too
1: worried
2: about it. Yeah. I mean there's definitely things I wish didn't
1: happen, you know, yeah.
2: but I mean the fact that they did doesn't,
0: you know I don't lose sleep me. at night. Yeah.
2: I can't wait to talk about it when we get to analysis. I didn't swear off talking. I thought I could keep this bit going longer, though. Uh, yeah, it checks out. No, absolutely. <laughs> didn't even make it a minute. <laughs> no, <of> not. <laughs> he asked a very thought-provoking <laughs> question. Uh, no, absolutely not. Of course not. I think that's what this movie's about. Yeah, uh, I think the movie's. Uh, I can't wait a bad for us well. to talk about it. So, um, hi, I'm still Dustin. I'm, I'm still Dalton. Dalton. I'm still Arthur. <laughs> I just realized we didn't introduce ourselves uh, last week. I don't think we did. After 351 episodes, I think they've got to figure hey, it figured out. Got the idea. I
1: mean, it is on the des- description, so they probably can figure it out. Yeah. So uh, this is the Good Trash Owner Cast. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're gonna be talking about movies that you don't discuss in film say's course unless it happens to be January.
2: I like the idea that the listener has to go somewhere to listen to us. That's a very fun. Thank you for coming. Thanks for coming.
1: Uh, good seeing you. Anyway. Um, have, have a seat. There you go. Can I get you a drink? Um, we have
2: coffee, water.
1: Yeah. Soda. Soda. I could,
2: I, I could scrounge you up something weird if you want. Like oh, com, kombucha? I mean, <laughs> no, it's the, the juice Freddie Quell makes in the master. It's just it's just paint thinner and coconut milk. Oh golly. Uh what were you saying about uh, this marathon? Uh this
1: marathon is uh, movies that you probably might encounter in a film place. Of course this is an Academy Award winning film and uh, as such, or Academy Award dominated. Would it win? It, it won, won for screenplay play.
0: and uh, I think Uh, Oh my gosh Why can't I think of anything tonight Clementine. Best, best Snow. Whoa, did Kate Winslet got Winslet nominated. got
2: a nomination? She got nominated. I okay, I thought oh. you were about to say she got a win. But the screenplay did win? Yep. That Original. Yeah. A ton of sense. The
1: Snow didn't get into a nomination? No. No.
0: No. 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 Okay. Well, I was going to. The Faceless Elijah Wood did not get a nomination. Um well, to my chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> love that Faceless Elijah Wood. <laughs> and
1: he
2: made that golem turn early. <laughs> uh,
0: but nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> he had the ring. <laughs> he had the in ring. In 2004.
2: <laughs> All right, I'll help Dustin get us back on track. <laughs> yeah, normally this is a show where we talk about the films you would never dis- discuss. Oh. Okay, well, try to work back <laughs> off the rails. Hold on, we got this—that you never discuss in a film studies course. Uh, however, every January we put that aside and uh, revel in a Hollywood loving itself, and we talk about the films you would talk about in a film studies course. Exactly, and it's fun—it's fun for a break.
1: Uh, Michelle Gondry or um, Charlie Kaufman's or Jim Carrey's. Or Kate Winslet's. Or Kate, I was getting there, Kate Winslet's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is one of those kinds of films. Now, to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show, it's an analysis show, and that does mean spoilers, and this movie has kind of a twist, and so, I mean, I think it's 15 years old and pretty well known at this point in time, but we are not going to avoid that spoiler. Uh, however, that being said, we will avoid it for the first part of the show. And so um, our distance to the spoiler will decrease as we get further on. So we'll be way, way far away as we do uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. We get a little bit closer and uh, warm, warmer, yeah. and then boiling hot by the time yeah. we get to uh, analysis. Which yeah,
2: much is... like a black hole, the event horizon will become uh, ever and ever more apparent until your innards are sucked out through your eyeballs. Um that's exactly. That's what happens when films get spoiled for you. I don't know if you knew that, listener.
1: Oh, I thought that's what happens to Kate Winslet. Is that what happens in this movie? I, I think so.
2: Um, that's how I they think t- you that's watched High that, Life that, again. That, that's
1: how they take your memories out. I think out. you
2: watched High Life again. Or
0: Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs>
2: oh, God. Oh, oh, truly a traumatic children's Not swim, if ever there was dip. one. Uh, <laughs> it's worth mentioning that uh, Arthur has programmed this lovely marathon around uh, 20 for 20. We're here in the year of our, uh, our Orange Giants uh, 2020. Uh, hey, it's not the lore, I can tell you that much. Uh, oy, that's topical. I don't know. Anyway, this movie was made for $20 million. We're on one tonight. I, we did. <laughs> look, listener, It's it's been a week for you. It's been about two and a half hours for us. I'm feeling real cagey. <laughs> um... So, yeah, Arthur has programmed
1: this. This movie was made with a $20 million budget, and that is its 20 uh, correlation to the 20 for 20s here. So let's go ahead and hear that synopsis and get right down into uh, those thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. Go ahead, Arthur.
0: A collaboration between two unique creatives and Michelle Gontry and Charlie Kaufman, Eternal Sunshine is a surreal exploration of relationships and memory. Following their breakup, Clementine and Joel decide to go through a modern medical treatment that will allow them to have their memories of each other erased. Told through a series of fading memories, Joel is forced to face his relationship and where it went wrong while being reminded of what he loved most about Clementine. Made on a budget of $20 million, Eternal Sunshine went on to a worldwide gross of $72 million, becoming Kaufman's most profitable work and Gondry's second most profitable after 2011's the Green Hornet.
2: Uh, uh, I forgot that that was a thing. Oh,
0: wow. That's right. Michelle
2: Gondry directed The Green Hornet starring Seth Rogen. Mm. Wow. Man, the 2010s were a weird decade for film, huh? Indeed. Indeed. But but
1: the,
2: <laughs> truly strange.
1: The 20-aughts were also quite weird because this movie is so mid-2000s,
2: yes? Holy shit. The, yeah, I mean, the the mid-aughts are just, like, embedded into the DNA. Yeah, yeah th- just this movie. This film is the aesthetic of that, that middle part of the decade, I think. Totally by accident, but, yeah, it does feel very of its time. So
1: let's go ahead and do those reviews, then. Um, what do you think in terms of thumbs-up, thumbs-down appreciation? Now, you've seen the movie before. Arthur, have. you've never seen it. Actually, I take it back from you, Dalton. I give it to Arthur because you are the... I virgin role you are the virgin viewer and so uh thus and therefore uh, what did you
0: think of your first experience of the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind this movie opens with a 20 minute cold open uh and then tonally pulls the rug out from under you and it is very sleek i appreciate that quite a bit the uh the tonal dissonance between that first 18 minutes before the title card and to the uh immediate emotional backlash of of what comes after that title card uh, is a fascinating juxtaposition. I, I think the movie is very uh, well put together. I mean, if you've seen Kaufman's work in, in any form, yeah. uh, you know what he brings to the table. Adaptation being John Malkovich are all very heady, very thoughtful, deep works. Um, Surreal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not as familiar with Gondry as, as I am with Kaufman's work. Um but I think he has a reputation that precedes him in that same realm of, of surrealism. And so to see this, you know, come together is fascinating the, the just the way they're able to capture this living dream slash nightmare, uh, that is Joel's mindscape is so well orchestrated from, from the use of the kind of practical effects to, uh, you know walking down a street and a car just falls uh, it's fascinating the I, I mentioned earlier, but the just true nightmare fuel of grabbing a body from behind and turning it and just seeing the back of the head again and again is just a phenomenal image at play. I, I thought a lot of and drive uh, mm-hmm. in in regards to that um, and I think there 's a real mastery of that tone. Uh, in those moments in in Joel's head uh, when Joel reverts back to being a kid but he's full-size Jim Carrey but everything else is gigantic around him it's just some fascinating work Uh, the way these memories just marry into one another and then slip away and then fade off is, is, I I think it's masterful how that all works Uh, and then that's kind of intercut with the real world quote-unquote which is the science team that's orchestrating this whole thing Uh, And there's a lot of fun there, and I was reading Ebert's review who had kind of pointed out, because I wasn't really sure where I landed with that, and he was pointing out, you know, I I understand that it breaks the tension, and I I don't know that I wouldn't have preferred this to just kind of go all in, in in Joel's head, for the the two-hour runtime or whatever, hour and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, But Ruffalo and Dunst are just so great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're so charming. It's just having a blast, Uh, especially Dunst. I I mean, talk about an actress who just – I don't think ever got what she deserved. I and mean, she doesn't had, know
2: how to give a bad performance. Yeah, I
0: don't I, think she could do it if she tried. I, I love her and everything I see her yeah. and mm-hmm. I, I I it's so odd that you know she had those moments in the 2000s and she just kind of faded away and we talked last week about how you're kind of used up after your 20s and I feel like Yeah. Uh, I just want to know
1: does Spider-Man know who Hulk's been kissing? <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, yeah. what i want to say since the, know. Yeah, the
2: mcu just breaks your everyone's
0: ability to watch any film <laughs> starring any american actor yeah. well, boy howdy when uh, when the hulk decided to wipe the redler's mind uh we knew th- something was off um, well with the help of Falcone i mean no less <laughs> oh, god i hate comic <laughs> book movies I hate him. Uh, uh. So yeah, I, I I even think that real world stuff mostly works, and I always love a movie. And I'm gonna get probably into this in syllabus, but I love a movie that's set in the now or in the n- very very near future. And there's a sci-fi element that's yeah. very grounded and realistic, yeah. and that's what we get here with this mind erasing. Uh, it is brain damage. Uh, yeah, you know, as Wilkinson tells them so casually. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that that genre. I don't know. I mean, it's sci-fi, but it's very realistic it's, it's yeah it's very it's grounded
1: very it's almost a soft sci-fi you yeah know? it's it, like
0: there's just like this is a very character driven drama yeah oh and here's a, a future thing yeah you know I, I like when that merges and i think it's always interesting oh, magical realism by way of soft science fiction yeah yeah uh, it's a fascinating thing for me to kind of wrestle with and see because it's just it opens up so many possibilities yeah. and to never explain it is also i think a, a strong choice um I, I like the movie quite a bit. The only thing I had a flaw with, I think, is there's a subplot towards the end of the film uh, featuring Wilkinson's character and another character that just feels so forced because it has to happen to get our characters uh, into a certain position in the finale. And I, it feels kind of out of left field from what we've seen earlier in the film. Um, unless I just missed something. I'm going to make the case maybe later in the,
2: the show that I, I think what this film has to say about gender, like that character revelation is, is like integral to uh, kind of like uh, is a, like a cornerstone of what this film is trying to get okay. at. But I, I hear you. In terms of structure... Yeah, it is kind of an eleventh-hour reveal that doesn't totally land cohesively. They within definitely the plot. were not flagging it early, and it yeah. just. I, and the way I mean, it,
1: yeah. I mean, there's clearly a way in which he sort of does seem to be very show-offy, yeah, for the character, but it yeah. doesn't really get
0: us there. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, so that's that's the one real drawback sure, sure. I have to this movie. I, I think it's just one of those moments, and, and where it's like, I don't. Is there not a more natural way to get here? Um And so other than that, though, I I think it's great. I mean, performances are all great. I I, I liked – I like toned-down Carrie. Mm. Uh, Carrie has either kind of a toned-down persona or he has the very frantic uh, persona that we know uh, so well from the 90s. And I think when a director knows how to channel that franticness at certain points – and I think we see it later in the film where he is reverting to childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, That's where it's called for. But it's a much more nuanced, I think, performance from Carrie – uh, especially early on, and, and yeah, uh, Kate Winslet's just fantastic, uh, just incredible here. Uh, it's it's a great uh, performance, and and one of the reviews I'd read or articles I'd read mentions, you know, she's never going to get another part like this, you mm. know, uh, and, and in the fifteen years since that movie, you know, we haven't seen her do anything like this again. Hmm. Um, yeah. It's kind of sad because it's a really great turn for her, I think, and yeah. it kind of opened up a new layer to her as a performer.
2: Yeah, she's got the, the Meryl Streep thing of where they're both hella funny, and they just can't, like, nobody uh, takes them seriously uh, comedically. It's, it's uh, like uh, Rachel hilarious. Wise, I think. Yeah, another the same, good option. Yeah, same
0: uh, area, I mean, yeah. especially at the time. I mean, they're yeah. coming up together.
2: Yeah, the, well, yeah, obviously contemporaries, yeah. sure. Yeah, well said, Arthur. Yeah, good
1: word, good word. So what do you say, Dalton? You've seen it before, and it's been ah, a long
2: time, right? Very long time. Uh, I was definitely— I told- yeah, I was a target demo for this movie. Uh, yeah. I was in high school when this movie came out. Uh, I was in high school when this movie like became a, a touchstone of uh, of young cinephiles everywhere. Yeah, I, I am squarely in the, the generation that I think was supposed to like consume and get something out of this movie. And I wish I'd watched it closer, honestly. I graduated
0: uh, high school the year this came out.
2: Nice. I, yeah. I graduated like four years later. It's They're adorable. Okay. Yeah, you you are old. Arthur, you were not that far apart. I was in grad school. Yeah, you had what, two the kids? The first already? time first, first time. time he's in grad school. <laughs> just one kid at this point, or you got two already? Uh, first one. Just the, just first, the first one? one? Okay. Yeah, I was a parent. Well, I didn't have any children. I wish to have my memory erased at that point. <laughs> I didn't have any children, but I was... Well, I uh, didn't do it for you. We're uh, oh, <laughs> just going to keep talking about what Dustin had going on in 2005? I'm fine with that. I just want to know where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen this movie before. So. <laughs> uh, you mutters. Uh Yeah, I, I haven't seen this movie in a very long time. and I, I was uh, When Arthur put it on the docket, I was very excited to revisit it. Um, because I've grown to like Charlie Kaufman a lot, I think this was the first film of his that I ever saw, actually. Um, so I've, you know, I've come to really love *Being John Malkovich* and *Adaptation* uh, in the intervening years. Uh, just was very excited about revisiting it, and yeah, I, I mean, Arthur, I think you did a really great job of kind of encapsulating what works. Is there's there's this very abrupt not only shift in tone but also in in structure, and I think it's so seamless. Like the, I, I mean, not to, to be. Uh, to, I, there's no other way to put it. When the drugs hit, like Charlie Kaufman made a movie that is very much like, you don't know what's happening until it's already happening. And and the way that that transition from I'm getting my memory erased to I am already having my memory erased is I I think Mm -hmm. maybe like a, one of the purest, most wonderfully cinematic moments of American movies in this damn decade. Uh I love it so much. Like it just and I had totally forgot about it. And it is it. like when the drugs hits. Yeah. I mean that sure. is very much
1: what the, the movie is trying to do, right? I'm gonna tell you a brief anecdote. Oh, I love a brief anecdote. So my son you the know. other day was uh talking to me and he says, uh, this is my oldest son mm-hmm. and he's had this conversation with his friends and the drugs come up or whatever mm-hmm. and he goes, Guys, I don't need drugs. I got my dad's movies.
2: <laughs> Look, you, know, <laughs> you, you do show him some weird stuff. Yeah. That's true. I just, it was a very proud a, moment for that's, me. That's, that's that's me. Drop some that. brackage earlier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what he says. Like, I don't need drugs. I got my dad's movie. Yeah, when that's he goes to grad funny. school. He'll he'll, do, when he goes to grad school, he'll he'll probably mix the two, who can be sure. Well, I'm, I'm... <laughs> integral to the human experience. I don't know. I, look, I could not stop being blown away by how smart this movie was. Dustin already made the very good point that it, it is just the aesthetic of the the mid-aughts. I think it also captures something we weren't really talking about until like eight years later. And this is like the toxicity of nice guys, right? And it's a a role, I mean, Jim Carrey is uh, famous for, uh, you know, all the way back to the mask. Like he's always doing some kind of inversion or twisting of a nice guy. And I I think this film has a lot in its mind about the sad sack romantic comedy lead that is always based on the sad sack depressed writer who wrote the romantic comedy. Um, even when they don't say it is, and I think this movie's pretty upfront about uh, Jim Carrey's character being a Charlie Kaufman type, uh, if not you know a one-to-one correspondent, sure, but definitely they seem of a piece. Uh, and, and the way this this film handles uh, again this this aspect of uh, gender nuance in American culture that I don't think we'd even really start to scratch the surface on until like another six, five, six years, probably, uh, maybe a little sooner. Uh, again, I think you know, Spider-Man 3 we talked about, which comes out two years after this. You know, we covered on our, our big Spider-Man marathon that that film has a lot to say about that, that kind of stuff, too. But I just kept being blown away by uh, the, the performances in this film and, and the use of those performances to serve these ideas about relationships uh, in general, but also you know, uh, male-female gender dynamics specifically. Uh, just the, the those gender dynamics within you know heterosexual relationships uh, and, and how they get manifested. It's, it just has so much on its mind. And again, we haven't even talked about the memory stuff going on. As Arthur said, all of the, the really beautiful imagery uh, and really kind of interesting use of effects. And again, it's a $20 million movie, uh, which went a lot further in 2005, but it's still not a huge budget. Uh, and they really just get so much mileage out of that. It, it is... Uh, a beautiful film to look at, uh, all the way top, top to bottom uh, in terms of production design and those things. But again, I just do want to pivot back to these performances because uh, we've already talked about all the great uh, superheroes uh, and such in this cast. But again, I mean, uh, Tom Wilkinson, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Mark Ruffalo, uh, Elijah Wood—this really stellar supporting cast holding up these two leads. And it's even uh, David Cross and, oh, the I can't think of the actress uh, who plays his uh, uh, spouse, but I love her. She shows up in all kinds of stuff, uh, a really great character actor. But, uh, again, just top to bottom, wonderful performances that are all really nuanced and interesting and, and trying to tell you something about not only these characters' internal lives, but just reveal things to you about your own life. Again, it, it, it is – filmmaking at its best I think is it is making you think about your own relationships and your own mistakes uh, yeah I, I think it's a, a dynamite movie and uh, I, I knew I would enjoy revisiting it I'm a little surprised at just how much I enjoyed revisiting it
1: very good very good I've seen this movie a handful of times and uh, probably in the last year I've seen it and so it was fun to come back to it and it's just, it's just a great movie uh, that's, that's what I want to say in terms of review it's just a very very well written movie and well realized and we were talking about uh, the sort of Revelation of being inside Jim Carrey's head as his memories are being yeah. erased. Which I, you know, in the I'm thinking about like a Christopher Nolan film like Inception or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of budgetary requirements that are required to realize that kind of thing. And what Michel Gondry does is realizes that with nothing and mostly using a spotlight in a dark set or a dark uh, exterior shot. And the faceless, just all this familiar dream imagery, mm-hmm, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and does I mean does so on a shoestring and really effectively, and uh, I, I really, really, very much appreciate that. I do love understated Jim Carrey. Uh, you know, there, there's like there's the two Carries as you said. There's meth Carry and there's heroin Carry. I always prefer my heroin Carry. <laughs> um, oh, oh no! Um,
2: <laughs> right? Uh. Am I wrong? Jim is in my thoughts often. I think about him a lot.
1: Uh, there's this wild and crazy, you know... Uh, I just hope he's doing okay. That's I mean, all. Yeah, I, I do, too. Because, I mean, I, I'm sad about his career, and I know yeah. there's been things in his life, and yeah. it's been tough, and... Yeah, um, for sure, for sure. So, besides making a joke about, you know... What particular intoxicant he seems to be using? Well, I, I
2: just, th- it's general brain state
1: stuff. Yeah. I think.
2: But again, that's where those that per- those performances come from. Sure. Th- those real lived emotions. Yeah,
1: for sure, for sure. But I, I do love that about him. I do love this the quirky turn uh, from uh, you know Rose from Titanic. That's great. Kate Winslet. I'm being silly again with not naming people their real names. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of fun. And I do love, minus the um, Tom Wilkinson sort of subplot, I do love the sort of interactions between Mark Ruffalo and uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst. Like, I kind of want to see that movie where there, you know, there's this quasi Ghostbusters kind of, you know, home rigged kind of technology yeah. sort of work and this
0: romantic, you know, marijuana comedy. That's there was that. this real push in the mid two thousands to make Ruffalo a romantic comedy lead, and I never really bought it. But this is the movie that would have been like, oh, I could see why they yeah. would try it. You know the movie that for me makes the most sense in is uh
2: uh the kids are all right. Yeah. Mark Ruffalo is way hot in that movie. Yeah. Uh like, but I think, like undeniably charismatic. It was just
0: like heaven uh, with him and Reese yeah, and, and Yeah, 13 did, going uh, on 30. Then the one he did with Paltrow where she's a flight uh or she's a stewardess. Oh god. A flight attendant. Forgot see, about I don't watch a comedy so I don't see it. Huh? Yeah, movies? isn't uh I can't remember what that one's called. I
2: can't either, but I think it's got uh um, it's got Mike st- Myers in it too, doesn't pretty, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. got a
0: pretty it's a I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'll swap for it. We're going to talk about it. We'll talk about it off air. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, a Weird phase of Ruffalo's career. But yeah, they, right. they sure. really were trying to put him in. I think in those more kind of he works character-driven yeah. type comedies like yeah. Kids Are All Right, which is a much more, I think, kind of dramatic, melodramatic mm-hmm. type performance, is different than that kind of rom-com they were trying to force him into. Because he doesn't really...
2: O- older, wear, sexier on him, I think. Yeah. And it, 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 he's, he's kind of like uh, nebbish charms or uh, magnified a little bit with age. Yeah. yeah. I think that's I it agree. Is. Yeah. But anyway, love it, and well, I, we could just keep talking about uh, how Mar-a- much Raleigh- more Ruffalo. Raleigh- 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 yeah. Well, I
1: do, but I really, I mean, <laughs> I th- th- that, those little bitty sections there. I mean, I want to see that
0: whole movie. Yeah, sure. Those two I- again, minus the sort of sad well, subplot. Well, I mean, maybe I think including. including I don't yeah, know yeah. if there was a guy passed out on a couch with a headgear on for like the runtime. I think it would be. Like, a <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole. It's a second movie that just
2: like. Uh, upholds all the themes going on in the primary movie. It's, it's like a Lion King one and a half kind of movie. It, it yeah. rules. <laughs> I would yeah, I would watch that in between. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, in between in between. Cool. My gosh. You're welcome. But
1: um nonetheless, I like it a lot. It's very fun. It's it's what and again, one of my favorite Jim Carrey performances of all time. And so yeah, it it's a blast. Um I like it. Moving right on. Let's talk about making this film part of a class. Okay. Which one probably could do. Uh, so mm-hmm. what class would you be teaching And how would you use the film And what would you pair with it? Uh, Is the question And I go to you first Dalton What do you say
2: Well uh, We've burnt through a lot of uh, reality And perception of time uh, Marathon or Not marathons uh, Syllabies The last couple of months uh, With Kill Chain It came up we've, we've, I can't remember I, I know I referenced reality On a, a recent one I can go back through my notes But it's not important so I decided that we should probably not be where we go down for for this episode. Uh, I, I I almost thought about you know looking at uh, just romantic f- films about romance uh, and like using it in a gender study uh, lens. I thought that'd be really cool, but it, I just kept coming back to this and Moonlight. Those were really the only two movies I wanted to talk about. Uh, so uh, that's that's not giving us enough. So we're gonna talk about performance, and specifically we're gonna talk about uh, comedians as dramatic actors uh. because it's all acting, baby. It's all acting. You think a comedian's happy to get up there and make you laugh, you fucking monkey. They're not. <laughs> you slug, you consumer. No, they're not. Nobody's ever happy. Uh, and I think that's a that's thing we <laughs> undersell in comedy, uh, is the acting inherent in making people laugh. And I, I, I think uh, looking at this, this quintet or so of films, uh, I don't know Maybe we'll get that far. I, I, I think maybe we can get a lot. Maybe it's just the four. Yeah, it's just four. Uh, I I think we can get a lot looking at actors known for their comedic roles and and examining the dramatic roles and, you know, looking at the overlap between those performances. So definitely we're going to start here. Uh, We could start with a couple of Jim Carrey performances, but I think this is a really great one Uh, because he has to do a lot more uh, giving. He has to be a generous scene partner here a lot more than he has to do in something like The Truman Show um, or some of his other dramatic turns. Mm-hmm. I think this is a, a great one to, to look at his ability to play off of other actors. Uh, then we've got to we've got to talk about Andy. We gotta talk about Adam. I called him Andy. Adam Sandler. We gotta talk about old Sandy Pants. Sandman. Uh, the Sandman. The Sand-Doozler. We gotta talk about him. Love him.
1: Sandoozler? Yeah,
2: I'm gonna stop on there because I don't think it's gonna get better. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I uh, recency bias has got me wanting to say uncut gems, so I'm gonna say uncut gems. I know Punch Drunk Love is the obvious answer, but I can't stop thinking about uncut gems. It's just such a good movie, uh, and, and I think in that film a- and here uh, you get to see. In dramatic situations, Adam Sandler and Jim Carrey deploy comedic tricks. Like It's the mm-hmm. same kind of shtick. The, yeah. the baby sequence you're talking about, I love all the forced perspective stuff that happens there. But it, it is a pretty standard like Jim Carrey voice yeah. and character. Uh, the scene in uh, Uncut Jim's where he's in the back of the car and he's like, oh, Who resurfaced my pool? I don't even know what that is! Who told you that? that's it's just like classic big sandler right yeah. it, it's and you see these same tricks you've seen a million times to make you laugh deployed in very different ways and i think it's really great uh next we're going to move on to a, a film that i don't think anybody saw uh no one didn't make very much money but it's seeking a friend for the end of the world which i i adore uh and i think uh steve carell's performance uh in there is is really really good but it also uh gives you a little bit to, to look at with Keira Knightley, a uh, predominantly dramatic actress doing a little bit more of a comedic turn. Mm-hmm. And sure, it, you could definitely call Seeking a Friend for the End uh, of the World a, a comedy. It is more comedic than dramatic, but it asks Carell to do a lot more heavy lifting than he normally does. You have to believe by the end of this movie that Keira Knightley wants the last person she bones down with to be Steve Carell. And I'll tell you what, the two of them sell it. You you believe in... in From every second the two of them meet up, you know the timer has started on this becoming a romantic relationship. And the the first time I watched that movie, I I was certain I wasn't going to buy it. I was absolutely certain it was going to flan flat for me. It was going to gross me out. It was going to be weird. I cried like a child, like a tiny sad child the last 15 minutes of the movie uh, when I saw it in theaters. I think it's a great film. Uh, really glad to see uh, Lorena Scoreffi, I think is how you say her last name, uh, have such a big year with Hustlers uh, because, again, seeking a friend for the end of the world didn't really do a whole lot of business, uh, and I'm very glad to see Hustlers being a, a big one. Uh, so just fun to shout that one out.
0: I I will die on a hill that I think uh, Steve Carell is one of our uh, greatest modern living actors. That's hey, that's a hill worth dying on. I uh, I I I love him. I, I think he's great. I mean, Foxcatcher. I think The Big Short. I think he shows a lot of range, uh, that you wouldn't expect from a guy that did The Office for eight years. Absolutely. I just really know him from The Office. So,
2: yeah, I I think, and again, I I I, I thought about those dramatic turns. I haven't seen Foxcatcher, but I thought some of his his more dramatic. Yeah. I, I think him as a romantic lead is very outside of his comfort zone. Because yeah. even as a comedian, he doesn't really operate in that mode. No. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's just a really... You could make the argument he's miscast, but I, I think he pulls it off, and I think it's a great case study. Dan in Real Life is another one that you're doing the kind of a similar yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't love that movie. Uh, I just remember the pancakes, mostly, uh, on the poster. Uh, finally, we are going to end with Ginny Slate and Obvious Child, which is a, a, just a great film. Uh, and Ginny Slate is so, 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 so good in it. I, and again talking about actors known for comedy. Jenny Slate is very funny and does a lot of voice work. Very big comedy. And Obvious Child is is such a... And again, it's, it's a movie where she gets to play a comedian. Um, you know, so she has that grounding in her her own background. But it, it is such a good performance and, and uh, a film full of great performances. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's, that's where I want to end. And I think just using... Uh, these four films and these these actors and their performances as case studies, I think, gives us a lot to work with in terms of just acting as as an art because it's, you know, we talk about acting is good or acting is bad, and sometimes it's just kind of left at that. But I think you can get a lot of nuance uh, specifically in this realm of talking about comedians kind of stretching their wings and, and showing you that uh, it's all acting. Yeah. For
0: sure, for sure. Well, awesome. I like that a lot, Dalton. What are you going to do, Arthur? Well, like I said in my uh, review, I I really kind of want to focus on that element of the soft sci-fi or magical realism meets sci-fi, whatever we want to call it, um, where these concepts are introduced yet never really explained but are the real turning point to make the narrative go. And I think it's just something fascinating about setting a movie in that kind of world. Uh, It makes it a little easier to believe, and I think it allows it to hit home a little differently than a straight – pure sci-fi uh would um and so i w- i would go down a, a rabbit hole uh with this and i'd probably actually go back with being john malkovich as well um where did my notes go um and then from there i'd go with uh, robot and frank um frank catch up with that uh, yeah i know you love that yeah, one. it's a great movie and it's doing that same kind of idea and this kind of Aging criminal and trying to pull off one last heist, but he's got this little robot sidekick and how mm-hmm. that all plays uh, and all the character that kind of comes with this in all these movies. I think being John Malkovich is another and exploring identity, exploring uh, uh, celebrity and, and what all that means. And I think being John Malkovich is great. Uh, it's a fascinating concept that is executed so well um, uh, for there. I'd probably go with the prestige. Uh, Ooh, okay. One of my favorite uh, Nolan works. Um, which you know deals with a couple of uh, magicians, and one of them has to get into science uh, and, and pull some stuff off. And uh, I, I think it's a fascinating look, playing with history a little bit and doing the Nolan thing uh, in a way I think that works really well before he became Christopher Nolan, um, Dark Knight Christopher capital Nolan. Capital C, Capital yeah. N. Yeah, as really his last kind of pre-Dark Knight film. Yeah. Or post-Dark Knight. I mean, it's right after Dark Knight.
2: Uh, it's right after Batman, Batman begins. begins. Yeah, yeah it's, it's before Dark Knight. Dark Knight. Yeah, you're right. right. I mean, it is before he becomes this this cultural
0: juggernaut. Yeah. The blank check filmmaker du jour. Yeah, and so I, I think there's a lot to explore there in just uh, in fascinating ways. Um, then I'm going to go with Colossal. Uh, oh, I love that movie. Which has a really great high-concept idea uh, and really just centers it around uh, this character who has a lot of demons uh, and gets into a lot of, toxic relationships, and, and it really explores those elements uh, through this very high-concept, silly kaiju narrative. Uh, yeah. And it works a lot better than it should on every level, I think. Uh, and a lot of that's due to Sudeikis and, and Hathaway.
2: Well, it was speaking of actors kind of outside their comfort yeah. zone, Sudeikis it's being the way more dramatic than yeah, Hathaway yeah. getting to be really, really funny. Yeah, uh, she's, She gets to be funny a lot.
0: Uh, and I think the last one I'd go with, and there are a lot I'd, I'd probably play with, but I I think... Watching this movie, I thought a lot about the Netflix series Living With Yourself with Paul Rudd. Oh, okay. Um, which has a similar kind of concept where you go into this facility and they do this procedure. And then you are now this in the sci-fi movie, right, uh, inexplicably. And um, Paul Rudd is, is another guy, you know, another one of those guys that can do just about anything. Yeah. You need him to do a serious comedy, slapstick, anything. Um, and he's got so much charisma and charm and is able to manage – not only carrying the show, but carrying the show as two different characters uh, who are both very different, and he manages this very well. But just, again, exploring those ident- themes of identity and, and life and where we are and how we got to where we are and as, as people and dreamers and creatives and things of that nature. So that's kind of the direction I think I would take this course.
2: Oh, I like that. Dustin, what are you thinking, bud? I'm thinking about
0: broken memory. I'm
1: thinking about just the malleability and sort of yeah. you know, uh, and, and you know, there's an essay that Arthur recommend that we read, and it mentioned El- Alain Rene's jetem um, jetem je which is which actually would be a good pair. Um, I think I might show a clip or two from it, but that's not actually the Rene film I'd pick. I think I'd pick last year at Marion Bad, uh, which is uh, this couple sort of. Uh, reciting to each other the stories of their lives together, but the movie keeps cutting and editing and changing, and they're in different spaces, and they say things slightly differently, when they say it slightly the same. And, and, and again, just the way in which uh, he remembers it differently than she does, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think it would be a very, very interesting sort of film uh, to play with. And then uh, the other film I wanted to do in terms of memory is a Nolan film. I wanted to do um, Memento. whatever, Memento, hit the, his memory movie. I, I was like, that memory movie he made, what is it called? The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight remembers uh is what i want to do uh, <laughs> he drinks to remember remember
0: remember.
2: you merely, the birth of November. Uh, you merely adopted the drink i was born molded by it <laughs> really
0: went cosby there at the end damn it. he really did <laughs>
2: i'm shit on my voices lately.
0: <laughs> bane cosby oh boy bane
2: Co- Bane of my existence um oh, wow. so yeah um uh, that that's it um <laughs> yeah no. uh,
1: memento and uh Maybe a little to Jatem, but mostly last year at Marion Bad. And yeah. uh, just talking about the sort of cinematic depiction and how they go about doing that in terms of scripting, uh, thinking about Charlie Kaufman's script. And uh, uh, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan script uh, With Memento And also just the way in which They are able to visually realize Those uh, distinct differences And able to highlight them I think it would be an interesting sort of form class
2: yeah, It sounds like this is a class <laughs> That is really going to be focused on Picking apart uh, Eternal Sunshine I a think A lot so. less supplementa- m- supplemental materials And a lot more digging into the film I think so, yeah, yeah.
1: It would be a lot of fun So uh, there there you go That's, that's our thoughts listener I think it's time for us to get down to business
0: It's business business time i don't know what you're trying to say you're trying to say it's time for business,
2: it's business and clearly this is the part of the show that yeah. we're most excited for because yeah. i feel like we've kind of kept it short on the the last two parts i'm very excited about this because uh, there's a lot of questions and I, I think uh we should just start where dustin started the show right let's talk about this idea of jettisoning memories and it's a uh, terrible idea it's awful <laughs> how would you ever learn anything
1: yeah. I mean, well, you would do it again. I mean, that's exactly what happens, right? I mean, the movie sort of tells then you it's that.
0: It is just insanity.
2: Well, I mean, exactly right. Uh I don't know. I I am torn because I, I I've never seen uh, Jatim Jatim very famous though. Mm-hmm. Um I've never seen Last Year Marybeth also very famous. But other films I have seen that really successfully explore relationships do deploy similar methods like a uh, Blue Valentine's one that comes to mind, uh just playing around with the flow of time and and you know, memory. Uh, I think that's why these are, you know, the, these films that are romance stories that are often the, the ones that are kind of considered as, you know, tragic comedies or just fully tragic or at the very least make you cry a little bit mm-hmm. uh, are all the ones that deal with the, the idea of memory within relationships and the way those memories uh, of conflicts inform, rela- and not just romantic relationships, just all interpersonal relationships, but these, these films that we've mentioned that play with time and memory. Do seem to give us the most, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, what do we do? We want to uh, just is there anything worth unpacking here about why these offer us so much? No, no, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't have an immediate response. That's okay. Look, that. I'm just puzzling this out because I think, uh, as we said off air talking about this a little bit, this is a film with. So much going on that it is a little bit hard to mine right mm-hmm. away. I mean, because it is so chock a block at the second time, second week in a row. I've said that. Uh, just it's it's got so much going on in it, uh, but I, I think. That that usage of time with, within relationships just is really fertile ground for storytelling. It seems like because there's so many films that play around with. I these mean,
1: ideas. certainly other films without the same sort of science fiction element make a lot of use of flashbacks. Yeah, and oh, yeah. Uh, this is how I met her, and this is the thing they're, you know. And and again, it can well, tell 2019's it, Marriage Story right, is, yeah.
2: starts, starts very much with this kind of idea.
1: You know, reverse chronological or inside-out orders are used frequently in those cases, and yeah. that's where you rev- you you come to have. And they they do are they do sort of function a way to hide twists. I think there's a way in which structurally narrative uh, about memory using flashbacks, those kind of things are are an excellent way to make a movie have a really good turn where you can you know uh, signal the lead a little bit, without giving it away. Uh, there's there's a way in which there's a certain advantage to doing that kind of work.
0: Well, there's a bit of that in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, with Lo and Zhang uh, Xi's character, Jin. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that flashback kind of adds a new dynamic into that story, because we've kind of understood Jin to be this very sheltered and prim, uh, kind of untouched... Yeah, almost prissy, yeah. Uh, ...person who's in this cage, but we find out. I mean, that's a pretty big reveal that she's mm-hmm been on the land with Low for some undisclosed amount of time. and uh, I think it's a pretty big revelation to that story and what her character is and how she functions.
2: Well, I think that, that brings us back to Eternal Sunshine really well, Arthur, because, you know, we've got uh, a monologue that gets delivered to us. Like, monologue is a strong word, uh, but a statement of self from Clementine, like twice about how, dude, I'm not going to fix you. I'm not your manic pixie dream girl. This isn't Annie Hall. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not the one, bro. Mm-hmm. And the fact that even Joel's, like, mental projection, right, his memory, his conception of Clementine, even she knows that, which I think is a really cool term, because the way we get Clementine presented to us throughout the film is we get a lot of conflicting, uh, presentations of her, because we're all always, uh, observing her through Joel's, Joel's eyes, mm-hmm. uh, Until the very end of the film, until we get back to that wraparound, yeah, um, where I I do feel like Clementine gets to kind of steer the ship a little bit more in ways that I really like, but I I think that that lens is is so interesting because it it, it's so obvious that these memories of Clementine are just you know what how Joel sees her, right? Joel's idea of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that even his idea of a person cannot be contained, and I, I using that moment, and again, because as Dustin said, you could use this as a twist, and as we said at the top of the show, the, the twist is that the beginning of the film is the end of the film, yeah, uh, and that we are destined to watch Joel and Clementine break up all over again. I don't think that's necessarily the case. It, it didn't have to happen on yeah. this watch. I don't think so. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that was the thing that really blew my hair back on this watch you know watching this as a sad angsty teenager i'm like oh this is just gonna blow up in their faces all over again but watching it as an adult with new eyes you go i think hmm. they'll be all right i mean maybe they have tapes of the things that they hate most about each other after being together like, yeah. so that's, gonna, like that's gonna that's gonna help that. yeah. yeah yeah that that alone changes everything right uh, and again it's I, I was so worried the entire time i was watching this movie i was worried about clementine as a character I, I again i think arthur you bring up crouching tiger is, is a, a fun continuation of where uh th- this conversation is going to lead us because that that film we talked so much about gender and crouching tiger and man again as dustin said the, this movie has just got the mid-2000s all over it and you know not not a time that was known for its its great depictions of romantic relationships uh This movie doesn't get it wrong, I don't think. Uh, Yeah, I
1: think it sort of undoes the manic pixie dream girl girl trope insofar as that she's The the trope hadn't even been named yet. Hadn't been named yet, but she's sort of aware of, like, I am not here to fix you, and that's I mean, I can't, and just don't... And that she is kind of... I mean, again, it is mostly Joel's memory, but I, I I can see with the wraparound bits, there's probably some truth, in and she's probably quite obnoxious from time to time. You know, she's not perfect. You know, in some strange sense, and uh, that and that that's a good thing because it does sort of undo your Zoe Deschanel kind of 500 Days of Summer version of the same kind of. I think that film
2: gets a bad rap. Do we? That's, that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah. I Think that film also troubles these ideas a little bit. Okay, maybe. We'll talk about it another day.
0: I, I was just saying, I think that's the genius of that cold open or wrap around or mm. you know we frame it as a cold open but it is the wrap around uh, because he he does a great job of establishing a what we understand to be a rom com. Mm. There's a meet cute and we've got these two kind of forlorn characters destined to meet and then he completely undoes it within seconds and pulls that rug and then begins to dissect meticulously what is a rom com, what are these characters, how are they problematic and how can we problematize that and i think it's a fascinating way to structure a film mm-hmm. absolutely uh, speaking of meat cutes boy does this movie got a lot of meat cutes yes yeah. they get to
2: have multiple meat cutes it's yeah. so nice i love it yeah. uh, you meet, uh, when you get to meet somebody for the first time more than once that's that's kind of awesome it's yeah. so sweet it's so cute uh yeah i, I meat cutes are integral uh we've talked about them on the show before uh, there's such a big part of any relationship movie and uh this movie gets to nail three attempts at a meet cute in that cold open section. Uh, but then again, we get more of it within the memories and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. they're both just so good. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, they're so delightful.
1: So you mentioned off air, uh, one of the things in the structure of the film that Elijah Woods character is Patrick is pretty crucial to understanding the, uh, the way. So we talked about, you know, um, Kate Wisland's character. Clementine. Uh, Clementine. Mm-hmm. There we go. Uh, we, we've talked... Her hair looks like the cookie monster is all I keep thinking. My brain just was...
0: There's a whole song about her.
1: Go, go, oh, my darling, right? <laughs> um, Huckleberry Hound, apparently. Which he doesn't know. He has never heard of Huckleberry Hound because, because he, he had the memory, memory... He had to have the entire er- memory of his Huckleberry Hound doll erased. He could not remember Huckleberry Hound. He couldn't Hound.
2: remember his childhood doll because it was too strongly that's associated with so his ex. so sad. Holy
1: shit. Yeah, That. That's, what a movie. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, sorry. But, you know, we were talking about... The, the Joel character, the, the sad, you know, kind of nice guy thing. Mm-hmm. And and so I was wanted to go, give you an opportunity to go ahead and
2: start with yeah, that observation uh, of that. I mean, Joel is such a sad piece of shit. Uh, and he, he thinks he's doing so great. Uh, and it becomes so immediately apparent why the relationship is falling apart. Like, he has no ability to have emotional openness with Clementine. And he's a frustrating character in that regard. But again, I, I think the film wants you to be a little frustrated by Joel and, and his, his niceness. Uh, The revulsion at niceness in the opening of the film uh, doesn't make sense until later uh, within the context of the film. But in the context of watching a film from 2004 in 2020, the revulsion to niceness is immediately understood. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's it's interesting to watch this movie be ahead of the curve in a lot of ways, because I feel like the last four to five years there have been plenty i think uh the netflix series love with uh, paul Rust and gillian jacobs really comes to mind like examining uh how like midwestern politeness kind of like m- metastasizes uh within straight dudes uh and becomes this this like white knuckled rage uh i would be lying if i uh, pretended this is not something that spoke very directly to me uh and i, I think we have so many characters like this it just perpetuates this behavior in our society and this this tolerance of it. It, it did for so long that it, it required big cultural shifts that we had in the last decade and big conversation shifts and uh, things like Gamergate <laughs> and uh, all manner of other toxicities to get us to start thinking about our conception of like niceness and politeness and how those th- things can just become a form of passive aggression. Mm-hmm. And Patrick is what I think allows this film. To really let that go gross, because you can't have Joel do that, right? You, you, Joel and uh, Joel is a, an innately like sensitive and sweet person that I, I don't know has uh, that amount of vileness in them, other than to say something shitty like "you fuck people to get them to be nice to you," which is boy howdy, it's, it's a bad thing to
1: say. <sighs> but it is a kind of venomous thing. An, <sighs> an angry person will sort of like uncork,
2: yeah, it's kind it's, of it's, and would want back immediately. It's right? that, yeah, it's that bottled up, push down, nice guy yeah. kind of shit. Well, what Patrick gives us in this film is is the stalking, is the manipulate, the mm-hmm. like the overt like sociopathic, uh, human manipulation, right? The stole her panties, st- stole her panties. Well, in dialogue as a pre structured script, right? He's pouring through Joel's journals to figure out what to say to Clementine. He doesn't even really like Clementine. He just covets her. Yeah, he just lusts after her, and uh, immediately he's like, "I'll oh, do." What's wrong? And ugh. Ooh. and then he buys a mannequin shop. Yeah, I've never been so happy as I am right now. Why? I mean, the the, the line he delivered oh, yeah. on the ice, yeah, and like, it ugh. sounds so like, yeah. When Joel says it, it's the sweetest thing you ever heard. And yeah. when he says it, boy, howdy, are the you afraid it's about to be right him and maniac, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Elijah Wood's great in this film. Like, no, I'm not gonna good. take anything yeah, he's away. Is. He's incredible. Uh, but I, I think he kind of like then gives us another pathway into uh, Kirsten Dunst and Mark Ruffalo's relationship, and then Tom Wilkinson by extension. Right. Because we've got this this nice guy thing going on with Patrick, who's this kind of like mutated uh, version of Joel. Uh, but then you've got Mark Ruffalo's character, who is, I don't know, not a nice guy, but he's kind of unattentive. Right. Mm-hmm. He just wants to s- smoke with his girlfriend and tell her why the clash are good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it it d- does seem like a very sort of, you know, college
1: relationship. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean it not that Joel and and again the casting of Joel and Clementine being uh casting actors in their like early mid 30s is crucial mm-hmm. I feel like let yeah. aging up that relationship and showing yep. that relationship on adults is crucial yep. but having uh Ruffalo and Dunst I, I I think gives us another level like right that Dunst likes Ruffalo but she's mm-hmm. she she's, he's fine yeah. she kind of sees past him because he is a boy he mm-hmm. is uninterested in doing anything other than his job and then Telling his girlfriend why the clash rule and, you know, dancing on a bed. Like, it it seems like a cute relationship, but there isn't a whole lot of, like, depth Depth. to it. Exactly. Uh, And Kirsten Dunst is, uh, in the ways that the film, like, makes her character a little ditzy, uh, it does make her very intelligent. Like, it makes her extremely emotionally intelligent in ways that I think are really cool. Because... She yes, Patrick, you're right. She doesn't like you because she can tell what a skeevy little perv you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And again, I, I think it just all of the writing on these characters is so good and gives us so much to like chew on. With uh, again, with as I said in the review, uh, just gender dynamics within heterosexual relationships. And I think that Tom Wilkinson thing and Arthur, as you mentioned, it, it is it's a it's a late reveal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't totally work, but the the revelation that this is an affair that happened already. Um, I I think is what makes it work. Because you're right, it doesn't totally make sense. Kirsten Dunn's infatuation with him makes sense. Yeah. Him acting on it doesn't. Right. The reveal that he's acting on it because he's acted on it before, I I think is very telling.
0: I think the really only clue, and you mentioned maybe some like glances or something, performativeness of his Mm -hmm. role, his uh, character early in the film. I, I, I think really the only seed we get is when he gets the call to come over and his wife looks at him. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a look there that doesn't yeah, sell trust. Interesting. Yeah, The and thing... I, oh, go ahead. And I, I think that's really the only clue to that. And so it kind of comes... I wouldn't even say out of the left field. It just feels like it's there to progress us to sure. the tape delivery, mm-hmm. which is the, the pivotal moment of that. And, and, and rather than letting Carrie, Joel find the tapes or Clementine finding the tapes or whatever, it's a way to get that in their hands kind of... As as easily as they can, I guess.
2: Sure, I, I think the thing that Wilkinson does, and I, I missed that that look that his wife gives, which makes yeah, a lot of for sense. For sure, does yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the thing that Wilkinson does within his performance is the way he is like very dismissive of Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. I wish I could remember her character name right now. Uh, but he he, anytime uh, and again, the way she heaps praise upon him is very clearly like the the way someone who's infatuated with someone would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can tell that he can tell that she's attracted to him, but that the. The degree to which he is disinterested in her approval um, really makes a lot of sense when you you find out, like, the the full context of their relationship. And there's no—okay, is this too hot of a read? Does that read a little bit like an older dude forcing his young mistress to have an abortion to you guys? Because it reads that way to me. I mean— it could, because, I mean... A- again, in terms of just looking at film, like... The uh, psychology is similar. Exactly.
1: There's a there's a strange bit in there in which he says, you know, well, we agreed together. This is the best thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a- and the and then that's the line. I mean, it, which could be
2: literally just what it says on the page. Sure. We had a conversation, and we both said, this is the best idea. Except only one of you remembers that conversation. Right. Yeah. And that's the part of... Yeah. yeah. That it, it's, it adds that ick factor. Mm-hmm. And again... Yeah. I think Joel, uh, Patrick, and then the two characters' names I can't remember. We've get these four portraits of men, and again, eh, we can maybe use some some more from uh, some more lady characters. But we've got really like interesting, nuanced characters that I think letting these four other guys, three of whom are kind of ciphers, mm-hmm. inform this th- the masculinity going on within the, these straight relationships this is
0: really interesting. Well, even David Cross, I think. Yeah. Which I mean, he's kind of a side character, but he's got kind of strange. Yeah. He's a. He's a not duck. He's, yeah. He's very not a good person. Uh, yeah. In he's, ways.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, he's very. His his wife's concerns about his uh, drinking and weed use before <laughs> driving. Uh, <laughs> his insistence that no, it's a ballast. It, can, it, it cancels each other it's out. It's a ballast.
0: Man. His insistence to finish his birdhouse. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> it's it, so it,
2: funny. But she's so mad that he keeps trying to get Joel to smoke a joint. Like, Let it go. Yeah. But you're right. He is this kind of like pushy, not listening yeah. uh, husband. Again, mm-hmm. it. But, Charlie Kaufman does not seem to have a high opinion of straight dudes, which is fair. Sure, uh, he is one; he would know. Uh, we suck. Uh, it, it is just kind of again, we've already got such a rich character in Clementine, and like kind of deconstructing this, uh, the female half of romantic comedy like uh, stereotypes. That also getting this this deconstruction of the ways in which nice guys are gross is. Just really fertile stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could you could you could write an entire film book just about this portion of the film. I think that's so. why we've spent so much time on it.
1: I was also just thinking in terms of uh, I, I, it feels like there's a weird kind of bioethics kind of conversation working to two parts of it. Yeah, working in this one is in terms of just relationships of you know caregivers, um, persons in power, authority figures, and and your subordinates. That seems to be. You know, the Kirsten Dunn's Tom Wilkinson mm-hmm. relationship. Yeah. And also, because it's not a subordinate um, kind of relationship, it's just a, a, a client and uh, a service provider, the relationship between um, Patrick and Clementine. But it, it's fundamentally broken because he's taking advantage of yeah. this oh, sort yeah, of situation, right? It, it's like, and it, it, I think it does raise interestingly the question of, you know, not only is it not good for your psychologist or your psychiatrist to hit on you. Right, mm-hmm. but really, your receptionist at your psychiatrist clinic shouldn't hit on you either. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and, yeah, and I think that's like an important, like, sort of additional level there because yeah. they do have access to certain other bits of information, and, the, and there is a power structure there yeah. that um, it's inappropriate for. You know, those particular kinds of relationships. As opposed to somebody who works at,
2: I don't know, a gas station. I guess you could pick yeah. up on one of your clients you sell gas to. I mean, that's fine. But, and I think that's why, you know, that's this moment that Mark Ruffalo, like, is immediately revived. Like, yeah, he sees like, nah, the dude. ethical breach and he's like, how do you not understand why this is bad? Yeah. And he ends up laughing it off with Patrick, which is kind of like, the thing that maybe damns his character a little yeah. bit at all is if he yeah. just that, that co-signing through like I'm uncomfortable, so I'm just going to laugh so this goes away. Yeah, which is that nice guy shit we were talking about. Mm-hmm. He does get that nice wraparound. Ruffalo does with with Dunst being like, I did. You're you're good people. Like, yeah, good luck. It is a nice moment. And it is a nice moment. It, it is the only moment in the film where a man does not sexually want something from a woman. Right. Which is really kind of sweet. Even as sweet as Joel and Clementine's relationship is. It is all about like the lack of of, of having mm-hmm. it, it is all about the lack of w- wanted desire uh, and for Ruffalo's character to be you know pretty chill about it I think is a nice moment that the film needs yeah um, uh, do we want to there was ahead. another bioethical sort
1: of question yeah. question and that is sort of the going back the ethics of sort of moving around the memory and I want to think about what that might be symptomatic of because there is a lot of filmmaking that kind of talks about implanting different kinds of memories and and uh, this idea of removing utterly certain portions of your life or whatever from yourself. And I, I I was thinking about just there's sort of a cultural move that we're experiencing right now in which the mobility of culture enables us to like utterly ghost certain sections of our lives. Mm. And uh, that the film sort of indicates that that's the I can't just break up with this person. And have those memories. I can't have them around me at all. And there is this sort of weird authoritarianism that we sort of have about our relationships it seems these days. That we only want to be in relationship with the kinds of people we want to be in relationship with. And we don't want – if they're the kinds we don't want – we don't want anything, anything to do with anything at all. I'm thinking about Facebook. Yeah,
2: yeah. I figure that's where you're getting. Right. About.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, the, the way in which blocking works, and the way those kinds of, yeah. you know, and other sort of just versions of ghosting. It. I, I don't know if I have anything more to say about than that, but it just, it seems evocative of those ideas.
2: Yeah, it is definitely a little bit ahead of ahead of its time in that regard, for but, sure.
0: It's definitely a, it's a reference in one of the articles I sent. I remember. I like, know they, they, they had a, a line, line about ghosting, ghosting that, yeah. that the
2: forgetting is the ghosting. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I'm of two minds about it, right? Because on the one hand, uh, I, I think it's important for people to be able to set boundaries for themselves, right? Sure. Uh, we, we cause a lot of carnage to each other uh, in the intersecting of each other's lives. And sometimes the best thing to do is uh, forget that that person exists as much as you can uh, outside of moving, if that's not necessary for your safety. Uh, if it is, you should. Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about it elsewhere. You can email us. Right. Uh, we didn't talk about that last episode. Maybe we won't this time. I don't know. Uh, but but the, the other mind of it to me is it is bad to forget, and I think you make a good point because uh, it does. You, you started talking societally, uh, started thinking about just you know where we are culturally, uh, and not just in this country but across the world, uh, and these, these very regressive movements going on, and it is that desire to – forget how bad the past was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you forget how bad the past was, you will do it again. Right. Uh, we have to remember where our societal and interpersonal death instinct uh, has taken us in the past, or we won't get better. Uh, you will have uh, a descent into either uh, just bad, unhealthy relationships on the personal level, uh, or full-on fascism at, mm-hmm. at the international level. I mean, that that is... The ultimate uh, fate uh, of forgetting what what has informed you, for sure, for
1: sure, and I, and I think that's important that you make that point. That there are absolutely people that you need to excise from your life. Yeah, like I mean, there's there, there's a whole lot of folk I know who need a motherectomy in the worst kind of way. You know, I mean that that's that's a thing in other relationships as well. That was just a a joke version of that. Many other relationships, sure. But that being said. It does seem as though part of the impulse that goes around alongside that, that's more negative, mm. is that we don't ever want to have anybody around us who's going to say the thing we disagree with yeah. or have the different, you know, understanding, that, that have a different sort of opinion about whatever. And, uh, and that we, we create in our lives these sort of vacuum chambers where we've forgotten about Uncle Todd because Uncle Todd talks all of his, you know, Alex Jones conspiracy theory garbage or whatever. Um, and so,
2: I mean, yeah that's uh, Uncle Todd's probably a lost cause But Aunt Sally, like, you know She she just really digs, I don't know, Fox she, yeah. She's probably, you can you can get her back from the ledge she, she, she would say something along the lines of I wish he would shut his mouth and stop
1: tweeting But I think there's some good things he's done You know, or something along you, those you lines You could
2: probably get Aunt Sally on your team uh,
1: Yeah, and it, but nonetheless Not even converting Aunt Sally to, you know, the truth um But Yeah, I mean, look but but at least having a relationship. You have with, to talk to Aunt Sally and and be willing to hear her say those things yeah. without it being uh, like this sort of knockdown dragout. No,
2: Uncle Todd, I'm going to go ahead and say you can forget about it. I may walk out the room with Uncle Todd yeah, too. But I, I so that was an extreme example. I was sure, pulling I, out of my head there. It is a good point. It is worth bringing up in our our current discourse. And I don't I, know. I feels like it's been getting. I don't know. I feel like the last year seems better, and it's not just my life. It's just you know uh, the the writing that's going on in the world. The the podcasting that's going on in the world, the filmmaking, and the art that's being made—it does seem like the impulse has become to try and build some some bridges to any sane people in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do seem to, as a culture, be recognizing that like this impulse towards isolation is not good for us. Right, uh, it is very bad for us. Uh, it, so I, I don't know, I, I think you're, you're right to bring it up, but it's hard not to think about those things in the context of uh, this film. Because I thought about a lot of the, there's a Black Mirror episode that plays around with this a lot, mm, a couple mm-hmm. in fact. Uh, and I thought about Black Mirror a lot, watching Eternal Sunshine. And just uh, th- th- A lot of uh, fodder <laughs> mm. <laughs> in Eternal Sunshine at the Spotless Mind for uh, Black Mirror scripts, for sure. But uh, yeah, an interesting point, Dustin. I don't don't have much else to say on it, but I guess the last thing I want to
1: bring up because we did sort of tease this bit of analysis, and I think it's worth talking about um, on the last show: authorship. Mm. Is this Michel Gondry's "Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind," or is it Charlie Kaufman's, or you know, some of the performers?
0: Kaufman's one of the. I mean, he's like Storkin. I mean, he's one of the few, especially modern writers, Mm. whose name is kind of eligible to be a part of the title. Yeah. Sorkin has a very distinctive style and voice and tone, and it's very rare that that doesn't come through in, in the film that he's written, yeah. uh, especially, you know, even with Fincher, you know, I, th- I think it's a very much a Sorkin picture uh, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. And I think Kaufman's of that same mind. And, and I don't know, because even a lot of the writing about this, it's this Kaufman's film. It's Kaufman's it's film. and, and so you know, I have to question you know how much is you know I have no real familiarity with Gondry. I think I saw Green Hornet when I was when it came out, or you know, but I yeah. you know I don't know his kind of past. I don't know the kind of stuff he's worked on. I mean, I've seen Be Kind Rewind. I'm sure I've seen at least one other Gondry movie,
2: but he, aesthetically, like this does kind of fit within his wheelhouse. I, but I do
1: think it is kind of yeah his look.
2: Yeah, but it's his his look leans more twee and mm. Kaufman's aesthetic. Like again, as, as Arthur said, there is sometimes the tone leaps from the page and ends up on screen. And I I think you look at uh, being John Malkovich adaptation and this – well, Spike Jones directed adaptation and being John Malkovich, he, he. Yeah. he did okay. So, that's okay. so those, those two are different. But if you package those two together and put them alongside this film, they mm-hmm. don't look that. I mean, there A very is very distinctive voice. Yeah, so exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I if I had, um, I really wanted to structure my expanding the syllabus around Kaufman, but uh, I haven't seen Synecdoche New York or Anomalisa, so that kind of yeah. felt disingenuous. I've like, mm. got big blind spots on him, but yeah, I there is just something in those three films of his that I have seen and love. Is Anomalisa Gondry? Uh, no, no, Coffin, I mean, Coffin wrote, wrote it. And directed. Did he oh, direct it too? Okay. He's got some yeah, co-directors on it, okay. I think,
0: because of the animation stuff. Yeah, uh, But was very much of a sort with this. I mean, it's very yeah, very you know Coffin.
2: Well, he seems fundamentally interested in just the elusiveness of happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, look, I I don't know that he's talked openly about having depression. I got depression. Coffin's got depression. Like, there's no way he does Checks that. out. I mean, th- there's just no way. And I, I'm sure he's probably talked about it. He seems like a pretty open book. I just haven't listened to a lot of interviews with him. Yeah. But th- this, in all three of these early films of his, he just, and I know Anomalisa so kind of seems to be about a guy who, a middle-aged guy who can't, like, reckon that. Just, dude, you got to be happy with the people yeah. that are around you. You have to. Um like, again, it probably pairs very nicely with this film, yeah. especially with what Dustin was just saying about making bubbles and stuff. I'm, yeah. I'm sure it bleeds into it. Uh, but yeah, these 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 first three films of his are all about guys who can see everyone around them finding happiness, and they cannot figure out how to be happy. Uh, and they, they make for yeah, as Arthur as you said, they are so much of a piece that yeah, I I I'm kind of again we try to death of the author as much as possible, and I think Gondry. Uh, is integral to the film we get. You know, I mean, the the performances we get. There, there's a lot of directing happening. I, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, again, the page can only do so much. Th- there's there's some the fact that all like five six of these main performances are lights out great. Yeah. Uh, you can't discredit the work going on that Gondry's doing. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Arthur. Is it is? It just smells like a Charlie Kaufman movie. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, but I thought it was just worthy of, you know, sure, mentioning in yeah. terms of analysis. I think it's
0: also we just have stronger markers of what a Kaufman film is and not sure. so much what a Gondry yeah, film is. Yeah, I think is. that's true, too.
2: Man, maybe uh, we can find an excuse to do a Gondry movie on this show. You know,
0: that'd be fine with
2: me. Green Hornet, baby! Ooh. Maybe not that one. I was going to yeah. pitch Be Kind to Rewind, but I just really, it's a really charming film. So, I think it's now time, though, to render a verdict.
1: It is. So, what do you say? <laughs> Shell for Trash for uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I ask you,
0: Arthur. Well, for a. Might be maybe, maybe an unprecedented fourth week in a row. I think I'm gonna shelve it. Hmm. I think it's great. I think it is. I mean, it's 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 earned the status it has. Yeah. And watching it, I can see why. Um, it's one I would definitely revisit. Uh, I think multiple times. I think it's a lot there to parse through, and especially with some of the points we've come across, especially talking about Wilkinson and Dunst, it's one that's worth going back to see just what else is buried in the sand and what can be drawn out from it. So yeah, I, I think it's an easy shelfer
1: all right very good very good what do you say dalton
0: yeah um i i had a
2: feeling it would hold up just because of its either, its continued reputation uh I, I really expected it to not be that good though i, I expect it to be fine I, I did not expect to like it as much uh on this repeat viewing as i did um so yeah i, I absolutely am gonna say shelf i think we've had a, a good conversation uh it's a hard film to talk about it really is i, I think as with a lot of coffin films it is extremely dense and uh And we probably could have watched the movie three times and still not figured out how to totally parse through it. I I think there is a lot there. Uh, And again, just all these great performances from uh, some some actors really of this generation of filmmaking. Uh, I mean, they're not all the same age, but they are all kind of had like the biggest parts of their career at similar times in in history. And I just yeah, I I think it's an absolutely interesting text. Uh, that has a lot to say about uh, not only relationships, but also just general life philosophies. Uh, I think there's a lot to it.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm saying shelf, too. I think the movie's great. I think, I think the conversation's worthy. And it is just one of the sort of you know cinematic experiences of a lifetime, really, uh, in terms of uh, filmmaking. So, yeah, definitely check it out. It's definitely
2: worth your time. Well, that's that. Uh, if you would like to be part of what we've been doing here today, there are ways that you can do that. Uh, when do you like to watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Is it on a third date To, to figure out wh- Whether or not This person's the real deal Or is it right after You this break test. Or is it right after You break up When you need to feel something I do it on the first date To see if I've actually Dated this person before or Oh not. that's a good call yeah. Mm. I, yeah That's how I figure it out I've, I've got another recipe For that We'll talk about it later <laughs> uh, If you want to let us know When you watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind You can email the show GoodTrashGenreCast At com. Tell us all your thoughts On the film Tell us all your thoughts On God I'm on my way to see her uh, uh, you can also find the show at Good. That's a song from the 90s. Uh, Dishwalla. <laughs> is that who that was? Yeah. Uh, wow. I just remember the, the song being on the radio a lot. And we're also on Twitter at Good underscore trash. Uh, that's where you can just find out what kind of film news we're reading, what kind of uh, funny film uh, tweets we like. Uh, you know, have fun. If you're going to stay on social media, you might as well make the most of it. Clear out those follows. You only need to follow like one or two news sources, you don't need all 12 of the ones you're following. Clear it out. Do you really need all those famous people? I don't think so. Get rid of them blue check marks. Less of them. Have fun on the internet. Uh, that's at good underscore trash on Twitter. If you like uh, uh, this enough to help us monetarily and want us to keep these lights going, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to help out with that. And of course, uh, you know, you've listened to podcasts before. Rate, review, subscribe. It helps with an algorithm or some shit. I don't know. Very good. Very good. Thank you for that, Dalton. Um, so there's one more selection. In
1: our 20-on-20 um, 20 20, uh, anti-trash January marathon, Arthur, um, I'm ready. I'm so ready for this review. You have a very coy smile. He is very
0: coy. Well, this movie was released in 2019, and I thought it would be – I was really hoping I could find something from 2019 to wrap this up because it's kind of our tradition with anti-trash. We wrap up with a movie from the previous year to lead into our best of the year uh, show, uh, which we will be doing following next week's episode. Uh, and so I tried to find something. I was like, can I find something kind of anti-trash that has a 20 related? So I found a movie that opened on the 20th day of September. Okay. Okay. 20 September. It's a tenuous connection, my friend. <laughs> hey,
2: look, you got to do what you got to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was either that or ordinary people. Um, and so, I don't want to watch ordinary people. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a heavy hitter after this one. Oh, no shit. Um, so, uh, we're going to uh, spend a lot of time talking about our dads. Uh-oh.
2: Dad Astra? Yeah. We're watching Dad Astra, aren't we? <laughs> oh, I'm very
0: excited. Use the Christian name Brad Astra.
1: Oh, sorry. Mm. Brad Astra.
0: That's right. Next week, we're going to be looking at Ad Astra.
2: That's on my list, so I, I need to watch it anyway. So, very I'm good, very good. Excited to revisit it. Listener, you try to have yourself a... Grad Astra Week, and I guess we'll <laughs> see you then. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, we'll see you next time. I'm not free. I'm not free.